Welcome to Podagogies, a learning and teaching podcast at Ryerson University. I'm Chelsea Jones. And I'm Curtis Maloli. Today we are coming to you from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on the Dish with One Spoon territory. And our guest is Sheila Kote-Meek. Sheila is Anishinaabe from the Temeogama Anishinaabe. She's a full professor at the School of Rural and Northern Health and holds a cross-appointment to the Northern Ontario School of Medicine at Laurentian University, where she's also the Associate Vice President, Academic and Indigenous Programs. She's the author of the book Colonized Classrooms, Racism, Trauma and Resistance in Post-Secondary Education. Sheila, welcome to the show. So happy to have you here. Good to be here. Thank you. So tomorrow you are giving the keynote address at the 2018 Ryerson Learning and Teaching Conference, and your talk is called Debwewen, A Pedagogy of Truth. Um, and I know that you're going to be speaking about quite a few, quite a few ideas that, that came out of the book that you wrote, Colonized Classrooms. And so we wanted to start today by maybe discussing a few of the themes that came out of that book. And you talk a lot about both the experience of Indigenous students and Indigenous faculty and mm-hmm. um, their experiences within post-secondary institutions. And so we thought we would start by maybe talking a little bit about students. What are the things that we should be thinking about to make our classroom spaces as inclusive and um, considerate of the Indigenous learners that may be there? Well, according to the findings in my book, um, one of the biggest um, challenges that Indigenous students were experiencing at the time that I wrote the book were, were the ways that racism manifests itself in the classroom. And so if I were to think about a professor or teacher uh, in a classroom trying to uh, create an environment of inclusivity Uh, for their students, and especially Indigenous students, I think that one of the first things that I would like them to think about being more aware about how racism actually operates uh, in a classroom and how it gets perpetuated uh, in the classroom, and more systemically, how it gets perpetuated um, institutionally. Because sometimes we don't always recognize racism. We just think that people make off-the-cuff remarks and we just let them go by. Um, and and or, or we don't want to deal with it because sometimes it's very difficult to deal with. We don't we don't feel equipped to deal with it. So, being aware of racism and and the way it manifests, but also looking for ways that um, you could deal with it or confront it in the classroom, um, would probably be two uh, important places to start. So in, in a way, there's this responsibility that we have as educators to be equipping ourselves with anti-oppressive, anti-racist um, knowledge before we walk into the classroom. Yeah, I think if you're wanting to create a classroom environment that's inclusive and um, anti-racist, if you will, um, then you have to do that. Um, I mean, we have a responsibility, right, to create an environment of learning for everybody that's in the classroom, not just uh, a select few uh, that might be able to take up knowledges that might be what we what we would name as difficult knowledges uh, in a classroom. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by difficult knowledges? Yeah, so in my, in the book, I uh, in the last part of my book, I talk about different strategies that professors or, or teachers in classrooms can use. But one of the concepts that I, I pulled from and built upon from Deborah Britzman, who worked, um, who did some work around difficult knowledges and, and what she defined them as being, um, you know, the way that students in, in, in the classroom confront 
social traumas or traumas um, in narratives and how they uh, deal with them in the classroom. And so when I think about uh, some of the um, knowledges that we're trying to bring into uh, the curriculum right now, so for example, the residential schools, there's lots of talk about that. Uh, there's talk about the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission. Um, there's also the 60 Scoop um, it becomes really important that we think about those um, moments or those pieces of knowledge and pieces of information, narratives and stories. We have to think about them as being uh, traumas, first of all, that they were traumatic. Um, my grandfather went to residential school. It wasn't something that we talked about in the in our family system. So if I were a young student going to going to school now and finding out all of this stuff, it would be very difficult because there's already trauma in the family. And then going into the school system and trying to hear more about residential schools makes it very difficult. So it becomes difficult knowledge, um, one, to teach, but also for the learner to take up in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think you've said in different contexts that everyone's experience taking up that knowledge is a bit different. And so, too, are people's experiences trying to teach that, because as you say, it's it's a matter of trying to teach trauma in, a, in particular ways. Yes. And so in, in my book, I don't talk a lot about non-Indigenous students' experiences in the classroom. My research was based on really focusing on it, the Indigenous student and their experience in the classroom. And I did that very intentionally when mm-hmm. I did my research, uh, because I really wanted to understand better um, you know, pedagogically what we could do in the classroom. But certainly difficult uh, material is not only difficult for an Indigenous learner in the classroom, but it's also difficult for non-Indigenous students. So my more recent work is starting to look at um, how do we uh, deliver material that is difficult for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous to hear, because what happens to sometimes to a non-Indigenous student is that it's difficult for them to hear it because they feel... they. Uh, or it evokes all these feelings of, you know, guilt, um, denial. They're almost confronted with their own past uh, through their, you know, ancestors, mm-hmm. right? And so they want to distance themselves from that. I wasn't part of that, so mm-hmm. um, you can't possibly be me. So there's all the, that going on with non-Indigenous learners, and there's all the stuff in my book that I talk about what happens to the Indigenous learners. So... The I think the um, mixing mixed classrooms it becomes really difficult for a professor to be aware of all this dynamic that's operating in the classroom. So, yeah, so you could get like uh, responses that I've heard in my book, you know, students snickering or making kind of like racial slurs uh, uh, when Indigenous students are presenting or talking about uh, some of the you know, pieces around the Indian Act, for example. Um, And those racial slurs are embedded in racism, right? So it's very difficult for an Indigenous student to confront that in the classroom. And and for non-Indigenous students now, my thinking is that it's their responses to that is probably because they don't know how to respond either. And so some of the snickering and, and laughing is really inappropriate. It's really uh, racist, uh, but they don't know any other way 
to respond. That's all that they have known because systemically racism operates to uh, put Indigenous peoples in a particular place in the hierarchy, right? So we have uh, usually with uh, colonization, there's hierarchies of, you know, inferiority, superiority, etc. And Indigenous peoples are inferiorized already. And so um, part of their response is embedded in the systemic racism that's already operating and you mentioned in your book that as a consequence, many Indigenous learners will not self-identify because mm-hmm. of the, the because of they know that experience may um, be a consequence. Yes. Or I, the other group that you kind of or the other experience that you highlight in your book is about Indigenous learners who um, who often feel like they're going to be called out as experts in the classroom on Indigenous issues. Do you maybe want to speak a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah. So that that would be probably one of the reasons why they wouldn't want to self-identify, right, in a classroom, uh, because they get called out, they get put on the spot, they're expected to answer, you know, all the questions related to Indigenous, and then, uh, then if they don't answer, um, they have to contend with, you know, feeling uh, embarrassed because they don't, or ashamed that they don't. There's uh, a range of emotions that they might experience. And then uh, their peers and or even the professor um, has the expectation that they should be able to answer all the questions, right? And when they don't, then their own authenticity as an Indigenous person gets called into question. You can't possibly be, quote-unquote, a real uh, Indigenous person if you're not able to answer these questions. It's, it's the same way that culture operates um, in a classroom as well for both an Indigenous student and an Indigenous professor. So sometimes if, for example, myself teaching, um, there's an expectation that I would perform culture in the classroom, and I don't, Mm -hmm. right? Mm. And so if I don't, then uh, your authenticity again gets called into question that you can't possibly be real Indigenous if you're not performing ceremony, uh, you're not doing you know, tobacco, you're not um, participating in uh, particular cultural ways that people expect you to, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's very specific um, examples about why Indigenous professors choose not to do that. And I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Bell Hooks, but she talks about this concept about uh, eating the other, right? And she talks Mm -hmm. about how we consume the other. And the other, in this case, would be the Indigenous people, right? And their narratives, their stories, and so forth. And how those stories get taken up and consumed by non-Indigenous people um, are usually very racialized. And, romanticized uh, and, and romanticized spiritualized and all those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. spiritualized, yeah. stereotypical. I mean, it makes me think about, you know, you mentioned bell hooks and the consuming of the story or consuming of the other. And the notion that not everybody's story is simply up for grabs, either in the classroom space or for the institution. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate um, some of what you're saying, which sounds sort of like a multi-directional flow or some sort of exchange between the on-the-ground, gl- on in-the-classroom stuff. And I'm thinking of the the night school instructor who's there at 8 p.m. and no one else is on campus except them and their students, and then the big, broad institution. And I'm just wondering, how do those two things connect when it comes to thinking about reconciliation in a classroom? Mm -hmm. I think we've jumped to reconciliation too quick. That's just my thought. That's why my topic is, (laughs) my talk tomorrow is called 
Debewin is another word for truth mm-hmm. um, in the Anishinaabe language. And so I titled it Debewin on the pedagogy of truth. And so I think when I think about reconciliation, I think you can't possibly have reconciliation until people understand what the truth really was. Mm. And it's a really difficult truth. And um, I think when we think about that in a very real, very real way, like for me, I guess I get, I'm profoundly impacted by that. And so how can it be possible that we can move to reconciliation already when we haven't even gotten through the K-12 system, you know, the college system, university system, and gotten this material all into the classroom and we're all talking about reconciliation? I always try to chunk things down so I understand it better. So I think about, you know, you're in a relationship with somebody and, you know, you're you're on the verge of like splitting up and you, you want to reconcile. And so we're going to move right to re- reconciliation without having, you know, all the difficult talk that needs to go on before that. Have we had that? I don't think so. Um, it's really interesting because, you know, because there are 94 calls to action, uh, which we, you know, we don't have in our relationships, <laughs> but there's this added pressure that because there are these calls to action that as institutions, we need to now be acting, which we do. I mean, I think it's important yeah. that we are acting, um, but that we need to have, we need to move really quickly to that reconciliation yeah. piece. You work in senior administration. Yes. Um, you know, when you're thinking about how this has worked at your institution or maybe some of the challenges that you've heard as administrators try to um, try to address this at an institutional level, but then also encourage their different departments and faculties to be taking up the TRC calls to action or the report. Um, what are some of the challenges you've seen? Yeah, I don't get me wrong. I yeah. don't think that there's anything wrong with the TRC um, and the 94 calls to action. I think they came at a very great like a very good time, um, you know, was really important because what it did was um, it helped propel the work that a lot of people were already doing, um, whether they were senior administrators, uh, whether they were in management positions in student support services, whether they were Indigenous profs or, or non-Indigenous allies trying to uh, change uh, a huge system. Um the, what the TRC has done and the 94 calls to action is it's gotten people to be more aware of what's going on, right? So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing it. Of course. But I yeah. think we need to be a bit more thoughtful about how we're doing it. Um, and, I, and, I, and it's not just to criticize anybody, but um, because for um, a lot of Indigenous people that I talk with, there's still a lot of hurt. There's anger. Um, frustration. Um, I talked to some of the elders and they're frustrated as well because people are moving to reconciliation like it's a feel-good project and it's a reconciliation doesn't feel good, right? If you've ever been, I go back to this, if you've (laughs) ever been in a relationship that's kind of breaking down, it doesn't really feel good. Mm -hmm. Nobody feels good, you know, until you get over that. Uh, talk that needs to happen and and uh, the healing that needs to happen and at the individual level there needs to be a lot of trust that's built and relationship building um, so that's at the individual level you know you can look at it like community levels uh, all the things that need to happen with reconciliation and then more say at a governmental type of level um, so there's various levels as well in terms of what can happen in reconciliation so in our institutions yeah there's there's 
definitely challenges. Um, so, for example, you know, we're looking at ways to increase Indigenous faculty um, across um, a variety of diff- disciplines. Um, that's been a challenge. You know, you have to work within most of the time a unionized environment that has a very specific procedures about how hiring happens. So that's a part 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 of the challenge. Um, then you're also dealing with systemic issues. You know about how hiring committees are formed, uh, who gets to be on the hiring committees, and and oftentimes there's not even an Indigenous person on the hiring committee. And if you've done research around how hiring happens, we know that we often hire people that look like us and talk like us, right? So if there's no Indigenous people, what are the chances that an Indigenous person, or even a Black person for that, would get hired, right, on on particular uh, hiring committees? Uh, We're trying to increase Indigenous content, we need more conversations about how to manage that and how that's going to happen because I know that there's conversations now that are happening happening about who's who's qualified, quote-unquote, to teach that. And so those are difficult conversations we haven't had enough, you know, yet. So there are some challenges. And um, one, one of the um, response, you know, Ryerson in our report um, has stressed that we want to hire more Indigenous faculty and staff, which is terrific. At the same time, though, I know that that's happening at institutions across Canada. And you and I had spoken before, and you had mentioned that that's actually put a lot of stress even on your institution. Mm-hmm. Do you maybe want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, so we were probably one of the first institutions in Canada to embark on increasing the number of Indigenous academics at our institution across a variety of disciplines. So we started this, I think, around 2009, 2010, with the idea that we would hire five, I think, at the time. And we we surpassed that. I think we hired at least 10 or 12 Indigenous faculty members. Um, and now, um, because a lot of institutions are also doing that, um, our challenge now is to retain, re- mm. retain the faculty that we have, right? Mm-hmm. Because... Uh, we know, you know, statistically that uh, in terms of education um, and getting through like uh, graduate school, we're probably on the lower edge or the lower end in comparison to the rest of Canada in terms of percentage. So at some point, that pool of uh, qualified applicants dries up and then we're just moving people around from institution to institution. We need to create you know, pipelines, if you will, or or um, promote uh, more Indigenous students getting into grad school and, you know, getting through grad school and successfully completing it so that they can move on into these types of positions uh, where the work is required. So, yeah, it is, it, it is a challenge. I mean, it's great if you're an Indigenous uh, academic or an Indigenous scholar graduating right now, um, it's good, you know, really. It's a great time to to look for a job, for for lack of a better phrase. And then when the Indigenous scholar gets into the institution, um, there's challenges with the high expectations that are put on Indigenous uh, professors. Um, And so they're not just professors in the classroom. They're uh, expected to sit on all kinds of committees. They're they're expected to engage in all the reconciliatory work that's being done on Mm -hmm. on the campus, et cetera. And I think you've also said in your book that Indigenous faculty members face a lot of the same or kind of similar experiences as Indigenous students in the classroom, but of course they have a different position. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
how post-secondary institutions can create or make space for Indigenous faculty members to to thrive and to build community Mm -hmm. where they need to do that. Yeah. So in some institutions, Indigenous faculty are hired and they're the only one in the in their department or in their faculty that's Indigenous. And so I think one of the things that I've tried to do at our institution is uh, try to create mechanisms so Indigenous faculty can connect with other Indigenous faculty. So we're, we, and I think Ryerson's doing something similar too, because I can kind of get a sense of it, that you're trying to create a community here where Indigenous people feel like they have a place to go. Um, we uh, just recently completed the construction of an Indigenous Sharing and Learning Centre. And so that space is um, dedicated student service space for Indigenous learners, but it's also a space uh, where we're trying to create an, uh, a community that's welcoming for Indigenous faculty, Indigenous staff, and Indigenous students, where they can go and they can feel uh, safe, you know, uh, they can be themselves. They can participate in ceremony if they want. Um, they can access, you know, a student could access counseling, for example. But even faculty can uh, go there and uh, participate and be a part of a larger community. And it's not an exclusive space. I mean, in that I mean that it's not just for Indigenous uh, people. It's also open to non-Indigenous people. But when I talk to the director there and how you manage that because you still want to create safety, right? So um, she was saying that one of the things that she's been trying to promote is that if you're a non-Indigenous person and you're coming into the space and you want to be part of that community, that's fine. But when you're a part of any kind of community, it comes with some responsibilities, right? So that means that you're going to participate and you're going to help out. And that's what we do in in our communities. There's a kitchen there. You know, there's um, work to be done when we have events, et cetera, et cetera. So we're trying to create that kind of um, inclusive community where people can come and learn um, about Indigenous peoples, participate, uh, but also at the same time maintain that um, notion of safety if we possibly can. Yeah, you, you know, it's really interesting. In my role with the Learning and Teaching Office, I work predominantly with graduate students. And... Uh, a couple of the Indigenous graduate students that I work with have, uh, you know, felt really stressed out about the fact that there's an expectation within academia that as you progress through your degrees, that you're supposed to go to different institutions. Uh, and I, like, so you do your master's in one place and your PhD in a separate place. And um, a couple of the students that I spoke to, you know, spoke about how important the Ryerson community was for them and how they wanted to continue to do their graduate work here, but felt that pressure to leave. And I don't know if you have you heard similar things from graduate students, or what? What do you think about the way that we imagine that academic system for Indigenous students? Yeah, I've heard that before, and I don't know. Maybe I I live in a different world, but I I think I've heard it, and I thought okay, but it doesn't have to be that way. And so um, I don't know why we would put undue pressure on a student to have to shift from one institution to another just because we have these kind of um, coded rules or unwritten rules about if you did your degree, if you do too many degrees at one institution, it's not really good for you. I don't know. Yeah, there's the idea that... At the end of the day, a PhD is a PhD to me. (laughs) 
you know. It's interesting because you would think on on the one hand, it's the I I think the way I understood it was that it's the idea that you're being kind of sheltered or like, you know, you're not getting exposure to many different perspectives. Mm. Um, But that's a very Western way of understanding how education works. Mm -hmm. Um, From an indigenous perspective, I imagine there's a huge strength in the idea that you would be developing within a specific community for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they would already come with a different worldview, right? Uh, most indigenous learners would come with a different worldview um, coming into a school system that probably is foreign to them. Um, so they're probably learning a lot. Like, so for example, I'll use myself. I stayed at one institution for my first two degrees, and I knew the institution uh, pretty well, but I, I didn't feel like I wasn't growing in my own learning and so forth. Yeah, I don't know why we do that to students uh, or why where that comes from. But, um, and I haven't given it a whole lot of thought, but one thing thought that did come to my mind just now was that you got to wonder if it's kind of rooted in a class system as well, right? So if you belong to, say, for example, an upper class system, you could move around from one institution mm-hmm. to another, do your your mm-hmm. um, undergrad here, your graduate degree here, and then move across the country and do your, your other graduate degree. So we have to think through those kinds of things too, what they're embedded in. Are they embedded in this kind of structure of hierarchy and classism and, and so forth? And so oftentimes Indigenous students don't have um, access to resources to be able to, you know, go to all of these different institutions. So then we're talking about accessibility as well. So It's interesting even, um, you know, think of how many of our students today have families that are, uh, you know, you're not when you go to grad school, you're going to grad school and you're, uh, you know, your mid to late 20s. And by that point, you may be starting families. It's very difficult to move your family around too, right? Yeah. And I would say most Indigenous students, by the time they're getting to grad school, um, if they're doing a PhD, would probably have family, you know, young children. Because if you just look at the statistics, right, we have families younger, more children mm. um, on our a whole kind of aging is much younger than the general Canadian population as well. So we're more likely to have children and a number of them as well. And then trying to get, trying to get to school, you know, and then on top of that, have to think about moving a whole, Mm -hmm. your whole family. Difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of tensions and questions about, whether it's even possible to decolonize post-secondary institutions as they exist today, and that our institutions are fundamentally colonized, and there's this danger in trying to indigenize curriculum because it may ultimately serve to sort of disguise the larger systemic power structures that remain colonized within post-secondary education. So, you know, just as a last question here, we're wondering, do you think it's really possible to decolonize post-secondary institutions as they exist now? I think it's very challenging and very difficult to think about decolonization um, of in, of just an, like a university system or even the educational system because um, the way that colonization operates uh, in a system is that everything is connected, right? 
so government, uh, the institution of education, uh, the justice systems, uh, the child welfare systems, all of these systems kind of uh, live and feed off of one another. And so you're talking about a massive reorganization of systems, which would be very difficult, I think. And the other thing I think about as well is when you talk about decolonization, what do you actually mean? Because when I talk about colonization in my book, I define it in very specific ways. And um, I talk about it as having like four tenets, if you will. And the first one is that um, colonization was always about the land and the resources. The second one was that it all, in order for colonization to occur, uh, it had to come and operate within with a particular mindset or a particular view uh, about Indigenous people. Um, the third piece was that it came with a lot of violence, which is still evident today. And then the fourth piece is that it's ongoing. So if we think about decolonizing a system, then we would want to at least address those four things. Mm-hmm. And so um, are institutions ready um, to... Uh, repatriate lands upon which universities are built or whether an uh, educational institution is built? That's a big question. Two, um, are we able to um, get rid of this underlying kind of racialized view that people have of Indigenous people? And they don't just have it of Indigenous people. Uh, It exists for uh, black people, people of color, Um, We have uh, uh, social constructions about uh, people who are are gay, for example, people who are able-bodied, disabled, etc. And so it means dismantling all of that. And then the third piece is that we have to address all the violence that goes on for Indigenous people and in their lives. Um, We just have to look at the murdered and missing Indigenous women. You know, when I think about that, I think, how is it possible that Indigenous women could go missing at that rate and nothing's done in Canada. Mm-hmm. Nothing was done. And it took forever, it seemed like, uh, to get the inquiry going. It's really sad. You know, when Canada prides itself on being uh, a country of tolerance, of acceptability, of cl- inclusivity and so forth, and yet this is the way they entreat uh, Indigenous women. Um, And then uh, colonization is ongoing. Uh, Land claims are not settled in Canada. Um, In my own community, Temiagama, Anishinaabe, we um, have uh, had an outstanding land claim for years and years and years. It's still outstanding, and there's lots uh, across the country. So when we think about decolonization, pretty difficult. Um, So I have to agree with the people that, challenge that and and question whether or not we're going to be able to do that and what are we doing with indigenization and so I I um, have been I give a lot of thought to that and I also think about you know looking at ways that we can transform these institutions into something else and so that's been uh, the focus and I, I actually talk a little bit about that transformation in in my book as well. So. Yeah, you're. I mean, you've chosen obviously to um, to you know get into a, a senior administrative role. So I imagine that you you have some hope about the possibility of transformation. Yeah, I I do, and so I I published this book in 2014, but I actually finished my doctorate in 2010, and I started senior admin. I think it was around 2006. So obviously, I was still doing my doctoral work and and going through all of this uh, data collection. And somebody asked me one day, you know, 
how I had a plan about going forward. And I go, you just have to read my book and you'll know what I'm doing. <laughs> and so what I've uh, tried to do at my own institution is um, some of the kind of directions that I give, I've been trying to implement since then. Um, one of the biggest things that I found that was really helpful at my own institution was really working across the university and, and really building relationships and taking the time to build the relationships with people and working with people, um, and I'm talking about people like, say, for instance, faculties or departments that wanted to do something. And I think, you know, when you start to plant seeds, um, you know, eventually it gets taken up and then other people take it up and become more aware. And then we were lucky that the TRC came along as well and highlighted some of the work that needed to be done. Thank you, Sheila, for being here. Thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed having the conversation with you. Thank Us you. as well. And thanks again to everyone at RTA Productions. That's John Gerardo, Margarita Brighton, Shannon Cavello, and Paolo Fergiuelli. And thanks to everyone at the Learning and Teaching Office or to the Learning and Teaching Office for funding this project. Uh, to everyone listening out there, uh, please get in touch with us. We are podagogies at ryerson.ca. Or if you want to make it simpler, I think there's a there's a comment bar on the uh, yes, there on is. the podcast on yes. the SoundCloud. <laughs> yeah, if you're listening on SoundCloud, you can comment below. Terrific. Well, thank you. Thanks again for listening.